Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Delicious Revolution Show. One out of every three bites of food that you eat was probably a pollinated crop. These include things like watermelon, a lot of citrus, almonds, squash, tomato. These are all things that require a pollinator. Pollinators are essential to our food system. Most of those pollinated crops are a lot of the ones that provide vitamin E, vitamin A, a lot of these micronutrients that humans need to survive. So we're pretty intricately intertwined with pollinators. Native bees are incredibly important because if honeybees do continue to decline, then we need alternate pollinators to fill that role, and native bees are the best candidates. And the estimate is about 20,000 species of native bee worldwide. So the fact that we only know of a honeybee is pretty surprising when there's all this amazing diversity just buzzing around at all of our flowers that, that we don't even take note of. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists, bringing you in-depth conversations with some amazing people. On this third season of Delicious Revolution, we're bringing you stories and perspectives from the unseen places in food systems, going behind kitchen doors, into underground nests of native bees, under the waves, and to the faraway origins of flavors we love, just to name a few. I'm speaking with people who work with food in places we normally cannot see or don't notice. It's a season of unseen stories of food. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com, where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. Hilary Sardinius is a pollination ecologist and naturalist. She studies the ability of small-scale, on-farm native plant restoration to contribute to wild bee conservation and at the same time contribute to farm viability through increased yields and increased pollination. Hilary is the Pacific Coast Pollinator Specialist for the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation, and she blogs about the current pollinator-related research, translating science into key points for the public. Here's Chelsea's interview with Hilary Sardinius. Welcome to the show, Hillary. It's nice to have you here today. <laughs> um, right now, I'm sitting in Hillary's office, and we're looking at this. The what is it? The lab collection of native bees. Our reference collection. And how many are here? That is a really good question. A few hundred, I would say, or at least a hundred. Um, here in California, we have about 1,600 native species, and the region where we collect these in the California Central Valley, we've collected um, about 130 different species. But we also have ones from Yosemite and other places where people have done their research. Well, it's a it's a pretty amazing collection. So, what I'm looking at is this box full of um, native bees that are pinned and labeled that. They range from, I would say, maybe like the size of a big marble to like these really, really tiny ones that I can barely see that 
Yeah, so carpenter bees are the biggest bees. Those are the marble-like ones you described, and they tend to be big and black, and people often have them chewing into the wood pulp in their porches and decks, and, and a lot of people don't like them. Um, they're, they're black, but in the Central Valley, some of the males are um, bright yellow, like a little piece of the sun. And the smallest bees, which is a kind of bee called perdida, they're so small they can actually fit on the eyeball of the carpenter bee. So that's the size range of them. But usually we think of a gel- of a honeybee, which is around the size of like a jelly bean. That would be kind of the mid-size bee and everything else in different directions. And of course, there's tons of diversity. So bumblebees are really common, big, black and yellow fuzzy bees. But there's also these amazing jewel-like bees, the osmia. Um, and they're really neat. They carry pollen on their belly. So if we turn them over, you can see that one doesn't have pollen. They have um, brushes of hair to collect them. And um, there's other bees that are stripy. This is a sunflower bee that has, it almost looks like it's carrying chaps um, of pollen on its leg, just really big balloons of them. And this is a specialist on sunflower, which is what I studied for my graduate research. There's even things called cuckoo bees. These bees um, kind of look more like wasps. And they actually parasitize other bees' nests, so they don't need to collect pollen, which is why they're pretty hairless. They go in like a cuckoo bird, take over the nest, kill the young, use all the pollen stores, and then emerge themselves. So they're pretty cool parasites. So of this collection, do you know about all of them and where they live and what they do? Not always. A lot of times we collect bees on flowers, and it's really hard to find where bees nest. So we think of honeybees, right? They're bees that have a queen, they live in a colony, they have, you know, bee wax. But most bees are solitary, so they don't have a colony. They're, in a way, their own queen. They lay their own young. And most of them actually nest in the ground beneath the soil. So they excavate net they excavate these holes create what we call brood chambers or little cells that are like lined with wax where they put we call it bee bread so this ball of pollen mixed with nectar and they lay a single egg in there and cap that cell and never see their young again the young will eat that whole ball of pollen and then pupate and overwinter kind of hibernating underground until they emerge again. So these solitary bee nests, they can be really challenging to find. Sometimes they're just a tiny little hole for some of the small bees. Sometimes they build these things we call turrets, like a ring of mud stacked around it that can get so tall it'll topple over. Those are easier to find. Um, So one of the things I've actually studied a lot is how to find a bee nest and what soil conditions they'll accept for nesting and whether or not those are present in agricultural landscapes or not. Um, But yeah, we don't know a lot about all of their life history. It's kind of an ongoing study. Well, let's back up a little bit. So um, I'm not exactly sure when we met each other, but I feel like some of my first memories of (laughs) knowing and talking to you were in the Chadwick Garden at UC Santa Cruz where um, where you were a gardener you you work there and um, you were so excited about it (laughs) (laughs) and I but I remember like hearing you talk about it and always kind of noting this quality of close observation that came along with like noticing what an environment looked like in this fascination with the natural world 
right? So when I think about you, I think about all these different contexts that I've known you in where you spend a lot of time outside looking at a lot of really small things in really close detail and asking why. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can tell me how that led you to bees. Sure. So I went to UC Santa Cruz with you and I went to Merrill College, which is up on this hill. And within the first two weeks, just exploring, I found the Allen Chadwick Garden, which is part of the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems, and was started by this really eccentric guy, Alan Chadwick, who was a biodynamic farmer. And he was so eccentric that he even, most of the beds there are um, perpendicular to the slope instead of parallel because he was thought that his form of farming could help prevent soil erosion. And they're still that way to this day. And it's this incredibly magical place. So I grew up in Southern California where, you know, Home Depot took over the local stream where coyotes and tumbleweeds used to go down the street and now there's subdivisions, strip malls, cars, like there's there's very little nature left. And even though I didn't interact with nature a lot, I noticed this shift. And so when I got to Santa Cruz and was immersed in nature, it opened my eyes. And then I went to this garden where people were interacting with nature and you could sit there and like you said, see migratory birds come and nibble the aphids off of the apple trees, right? I saw my first yellow-rumped warbler, which is this beautiful black and gray bird with this bright yellow booty um, in that orchard, and I just became fascinated. You know, I saw hummingbirds, which I thought only consume nectar. Sit, They do this thing called sallying. They'll sit on a perch, and then they'll go out and grab a moth and consume it. And I had no idea that birds ate insects, like hummingbirds ate insects. So I just started hanging out there as much as possible and started, I shifted what I was studying to study agroecology and natural history and took a bunch of classes, learned how to key out plants, um, became just fascinated with botany. And that led me to, when I graduated, um, become a restoration ecologist. And I worked in a lot of native plant nurseries in the Bay Area and one of the things I was really fascinated with was seed collection. So collecting plants to grow for these restoration projects from natural populations. And one of the tenets of that is to try and make the seeds as locally adapted as possible, but not harm the population. But as I would go out, some plants that you would expect to have seeds wouldn't have them. And that was perturbing to me. And so I started researching why. And it turns out that maybe they had lost some of their native pollinators. And I became really fascinated in that. Read a great book by Gary Paul Nabhan called The Forgotten Pollinators. Started asking my former professors about it. One of them told me about Claire Kremen at UC Berkeley. They said, you should absolutely talk to her. And I did. And she accepted me as a graduate student, even though my research um, in the past had and my experience was, which was a lot more hands-on. She was interested in that sort of applied aspect of it. And I started studying bees. And I started, and I looked at this connection between nature and agriculture, where farmers could create habitat on their farms. Um, I mostly looked at hedgerows, which are these linear strips of native flowering shrubs that farmers can plant on the field borders and not take up any arable land so it doesn't affect crop production. And whether or not that 
one, helped Native bee conservation, but two, if that also helped them by providing an economic benefit of increased crop pollination. So that is my long and winding tale of how I ended up doing what I do. Cool. Um, well, okay, a few questions. Sometimes you say pollinators and sometimes you say bees. Are they, are they the same thing? <laughs> So bees are a type of pollinator. There's a lot of different pollinators. Bats and uh, shrews can be pollinators. Um, those are the mammalian ones. Birds, as I mentioned, can be pollinators. But insects are the main pollinators, and they range from beetles to flies to wasps to bees. And bees are unique as pollinators. They're, we tend to think of them as the best ones because they actually evolved to pollinate, whereas the other insects evolved earlier than that. So bees evolved during the Cretaceous period, which is when flowering plants first came into being. Before that, we had you know a lot of um, non-flowering plants. So you could think of like conifers. Um, and suddenly there was this abundant new resource, pollen and nectar. And wasps and beetles can kind of transport it, but they don't have hairs. And so bees evolved these branched hairs that kind of let pollen stick in them and they started consuming that pollen and feeding it to their young, eating the nectar as fuel. And they, they're evolved from ground nesting wasps. So they're, they're pretty closely related, but wasps are, you can think of them as carnivores, like the tarantula wasps, right? That, um, paralyze them and lay their young in them and consume them. Bees are, are almost like herbivorous wasps. So they're, yeah, they basically evolved to eat pollen. Cool. Um, so when I think of a bee, I think of a honeybee, right? I think of it's like sort of cute. It's like yellow. It has stripes and it's uh, lots of people are allergic to it. And it, honey comes like, you know, it like comes from bees, but like sort of in this dubious way where they come, they like live in hives and they like get moved around on trucks. And I don't know, in my imagination, they mostly live in almond orchards. <laughs> um, but January, yeah. yeah, in January, exactly. Uh, and I guess somewhere else the rest of the year. I don't know. I can imagine. Sunflower fields in the summer. In sunflower fields in the summer. Yeah. Cool. But when I look at this box, it's like, there's little ones and big ones and ones that are kind of hairy. And, you know, you just said that they don't mostly live in boxes. They like live in tiny holes that they make in the ground. So what do all these different bees do? Yeah. So the honeybee, you're right, is very unique as a bee. And that's part of why you know about them because we have we can manage them in a way where we put them in boxes we can split off new hives and rear queens and ship them around to pollinate our crops almost like an input like a fertilizer right we need a pollinator so honeybees are actually not native to the americas even though they're here now they're native to like persia is where they first originated and people you know thousands and thousands of years ago were keeping them in pieces of wood and then they got shipped around they were present in ancient egypt 
there are hieroglyphics of bees. They eventually made it to Europe where they escaped into the forest and people would take, you know, ladders out to trees that had bees and tend them. And I think it was a little dangerous. You know, there would be robbers out there. Um, but people eventually realized you could cut stumps that were hollow and get bees to nest in that. And a big major Breakthrough in honey beekeeping came when they created these things called skeps, which are woven straw. So the end of a honey dipper, that's what a skep looks like. And then you had these light transportable ways to keep bees. And when they're in those, their honeycomb, it takes all of these really interesting, complex forms. It's not the ones in the bee boxes where you can just pull out a frame. So for a while, you know, people had those. And then they discovered this thing called bee space. And unfortunately, since I don't study honeybees, I can't remember what the fraction of the inch is. It's like three-sevenths of an inch or something, which is the amount of space between honeycomb where a bee won't connect it with wax. And so then you can remove a frame, and eventually people, you know, created these extractors that rotate to pull the honey out, and you ended up with the, you know, top bar and lawn surf hive frames that we have now. Um, so they have this complex history, but they're native to Europe and were shipped to the Americas with settlers. And they think that they didn't make them to California, which is where we are right now, until the 1860s. So before that, native bees provided all of the pollination. And they're just wild in the environment. They nest in the ground. Some nest in abandoned beetle burrows or pithy stem plants. So sambucus or other things with hollow centered stems. Raspberries would be an example most people would know. And they were just abundant. John Muir has this amazing essay about the bee pastures of California. If you go down to Tejon Ranch or the grapevine or right now, they're covered with wildflowers. The scene from The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy is in that poppy field is the Antelope Valley outside of L.A. It, it literally exists, just areas carpeted with lupins, with poppies, all kinds of wildflowers. So bees were super abundant and present everywhere and pollinating the plants and also the crops that people brought. Um, of course, with agriculture expanding, their populations have really declined, but they're present in our environment. As I said, in California, there's about 1,600 species, and the estimate is about 20,000 species of native bee worldwide. So the fact that we only know of a honeybee is pretty surprising, and most people know about bumblebees when there's all this amazing diversity just buzzing around at all of our flowers that, that we don't even take note of. And do these bees make honey? So for the most part, no. There's some bees in Mexico, the melipona bees, that make kind of a version of honey. And bumblebees in these little mud cups make a version of it. But most bees make the bee bread, the the ball of pollen moistened with nectar for their young. Cool. So let's talk about California because that's where your research is focused. And how does agriculture relate to all these native pollinators? So about what we like to say is one out of every three bites of food that you eat was probably a pollinated crop. Uh, these include things like watermelon, a lot of citrus, almonds, which you mentioned, squash, tomato. These are all things that require a pollinator to produce the fruit. There's also some 
crops like strawberry that don't require a pollinator. But if you want a strawberry that is the big, plump, beautiful one that you get in the supermarket and not one of the deformed ones, uh, then a pollinator has visited it. So basically, pollinators improve yield. They improve weight and quality of crops that they don't that don't require pollination. So if you start from that point, pollinators are essential to our food system. Most of those pollinated crops are a lot of the ones that provide vitamin E, vitamin A, a lot of these micronutrients that humans need to survive. So they're essential to our success and sustainability. So we're pretty intricately intertwined with pollinators. We talk a lot about food security. So I think... Uh, Chris and Maria Eugenia talked about this a little bit, but I think their scale was more at the personal scale, what individual farmers are doing. And when we look at pollination, it's more of the system scale. What would we do if the honeybee disappeared? That's a major crop pollinator. I think it's responsible for globally over $2 billion um, annually. Uh, it's It's really important to our crop system. So without them, a lot of crops would fail, a lot of farms would fail, a lot of people would go hungry. So we just because we just hear about the honeybees, we hear about like colony collapse and all of these other things, which I also don't know what that means exactly. So maybe you can tell me. But how do native bees play a part in that? Like what do you you just like made this whole list of foods that are that are pollinated and are they pollinated by honeybees or are they pollinated by this whole diversity of bees that lives there? And um, right when we started talking, you were talking about what a generalist and a specialist is. So maybe you could also explain what those concepts are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So honeybees are amazing pollinators. They're a generalist, which means that they will pretty much visit any flower that's out there. They're not very selective. Whereas if they were specialists, say like a squash bee, those bees only visit squash. So they're wake up really early when because squash blossoms open at dawn, right? And they go in and they spend a lot of time on each of the stigmas, which is the part of the plant that's receptive to pollen. And they act, squash actually need a lot of pollen deposited on the stigma to create the squash. So they're pretty evolved too to mimic, to fly when squash are in bloom. Whereas honeybees will come out later. They need warmer temperatures. They'll mostly go down into the base of the flower and gorge on the nectar and kind of ignore the reproductive parts. So they don't do as good of a job pollinating squash. If you get enough of them out on a field, they can do a fine job. But if you have that squash bee, they're much more effective pollinators. Much true of a number of other crops. Um, Take something that's an open flower, like a sunflower, which is what I researched. A lot of different bees can visit that. Almost all of the bees you see here could probably visit it because it has all these florets that are accessible that they can climb onto the face of. And so honeybees do a fairly good job, except honeybees pack their pollen onto their leg, these little pollen baskets called corbicula. So if you get bee pollen in your smoothie, um, that's the little 
ball of pollen that a honeybee carries. These other bees are really hairy and carry their pollen on their legs or their abdomens. And that comes, it's loose and not moistened and comes in contact with the stigma more frequently. So native bees are often much better pollinators. When you get a number of different pollinators, so big ones to small ones, they complement one another by touching different parts of the plant, spending different amounts of time on the plant. So that increases yields in a lot of cases. And when you have a honeybee, say you only had honeybees from one hive, on a flower, they'll just sit there and cruise around and not do a lot of cross-pollinating. Whereas you put a bee from another species on there, and if they meet on the flower, they get freaked out and both of the bees fly away. And so they're pollinate, they're spreading a lot more pollen in the orchard. So those are the ways that native bees can complement honeybees. But as I said, they carry a lot more loose pollen, and studies have shown that Native bees are actually much more effective pollinators than honeybees. Uh, I think the statistic is four times better. So when you get all of the bees in the system, you're doing a better job pollinating your crop. Native bees are incredibly important because if honeybees do continue to decline because of diseases, then we need alternate pollinators to fill that role. And native bees are the best candidates. So why would you want something to, um, you were explaining like this example with the flower where a bee would land on it and then it would land on another flower, but, uh, but a honeybee would kind of just focus on one flower until it had enough pollen or whatever. Um, like why does that matter for crops? <laughs> well, a lot of plants are not self-fertile. They need what's called conspecific pollen, so pollen from another plant to help fertilize it. You know, when you have apples, right, you need a crab apple tree to help cross-pollinate with all of your, uh, say you have a gala apple, right, same variety. And so it's that concept where you need to be moving pollen between plants. Something I didn't mention, but it's really cool. So male bees are are really awesome. Um, they often have really long antenna, uh, the ones in sunflower anyway, we call them longhorn bees, and they just zip up and down the sunflower rows looking for female bees to mate with, but they're not good at always recognizing those bees, and so often they land on honeybees and freak them out and cause them to move around even more. So that's just another fun way that native bees help move a lot of pollen in a system. Cool. And so bees are actually so integral to having food continue to be produced, right? Because without pollination, we don't even know what the impact, it'd be hard to imagine what that would, what a world without bees would be like. Unfortunately, we can imagine it. So there's a region of China where a lot of the native bees have disappeared and they actually go out into their apple orchards or I had some people visit me who were growing sunflower and they pay people to hand pollinate all of their crops, which is incredibly time consuming. And often we're not as good of pollinators as bees are. So the yields tend to go down a little bit. In the U.S., we can't really afford to pay people to do that. So people would probably start planting different crops and our diets would radically change. But but there are examples of what a world without bees would look like, and it's not really a sustainable vision for our future. That sounds like a whole interesting thing to think about in terms of labor politics and bees and how those two things are related. So could you describe what like a What's a normal day of research in the field? 
look like for you? As you're as you're talking about the squash bee, I was thinking, what does Hillary actually do out there? Well, I fortunately don't study squash bees. One of my wonderful colleagues does, um, and she had to get up really early. But I study sunflower bees who tend to come out when it's, you know, much nicer temperature, like 60 degrees. So I didn't have to start work until 9 a.m. And I would trudge out into a sunflower field in the Central Valley, which are, if you've ever driven up I-5 around, you know, Davis, um, just miles and miles and miles of them. They're, they're beautiful, but in a way they're also terrible because they are head high. They have all of these, um, stinging hairs on them. So if you're walking through them, you have to make sure to wear long sleeve shirts. And if you don't, you know, you'll just get a rash. And if you do, those shirts will get destroyed. Um, so I'd walk out there in the sunflower fields with my net or sometimes my bug vac, which is like a little, kids suction gun like literally i bought from a toy store <laughs> um to to capture the bees off of the sunflower heads um usually time how long you're doing it so you can standardize it across fields and i'd go out there with my interns we'd also bag sunflower heads and collect them later to look at how the yield was um and that process would take me most of the day <laughs> it sounds like not that much right now but um, it, you know, collecting bees takes a while and we'd put them into little vials, uh, and then bring them back to the lab and later pin them, uh, and identify them with most bees. Unfortunately, you have to kill them. It's, it's actually really sad. Um, but they, you have to look at them under a microscope and look at these very minute characteristics to, you know, does it have this little bump on its jaw to tell one species from another? Um, yeah, and then do data entry. But but also back in the field, I, I looked a lot at bee nesting. And so in the heat of the day, say around like 2 to 5 p.m., we'd go try and hang out, lay low, you know, drink an iced coffee. And then we'd go back out into the field around dusk and set these things called emergence traps. They look like a little camping tent. But they have an open bottom, and you can bury the edges. And at the top... Uh, it basically funneled bees into a kill jar, so a jar filled with soapy water or ethanol. And we put them out at night over randomly over patches of ground and then saw whether or not bees were there the next afternoon, which indicated that they came out to try and forage and then got trapped. And then we'd look for where their nest was and correlate it to different soil properties or above ground properties, how much bare ground was there or you know, leaf litter or vegetation and try and figure out, well, where are bees nesting and why? And we did this in the edges, so the hedgerows and also in the fields, and actually found a lot of bees nesting right under the sunflower, which was cool. But it meant our field days were, I don't know, some days, 15 hours long. Yeah, it sounds like you did a lot out there. I think just walking through a sunflower field sounds like a lot of work to me. Having walked through some cornfields, <laughs> I I can relate to tall plants and degree heat yeah and high humidity because of irrigation. Yeah, it was it was fun. I'm I'm pretty glad that the field portion of my research has ended. Um, let's let's talk about what a hedgerow is and where these native bees actually live and how. Yeah, I know you just explained how you found them, but it's still a little hard to imagine. So. Let's go into that a little bit more. 
Sure. Hedgerows, as I said, are kind of these like linear strips of native flowering plants. Um, you can often select plants to flower over the entire season. So starting, you know, in February with redbud, which is a beautiful um, pink pea-like plant, all the way into October with coyote brush. And the importance for that overlapping bloom is because a lot of these native bees, when they come out, they just fly for a few weeks and then that's that species season. But you, some bees also will fly, like bumblebees have a big colony over the whole year. So you want to make sure you have resources available for all of these species whenever they come out and for these longer lived species. When you have a gap in resources, then they might leave your farm and that would uh, not behoove you because you wouldn't get their crop pollination benefits. So farmers put these often just around the edges of their fields. You can fit them, uh, you know, between a road and an irrigation ditch pretty easily. They're just about, you know, six to 10 feet wide. Um, a wildflower strip is something other people do, which is putting instead of a woody shrub, something more herbaceous. And often those provide about the same, uh, amount of bloom, which is usually the whole area just covered in flowers. They're really quite beautiful. And bees are attracted to them because often in agricultural landscapes, uh, you know, fence row to fence row gets planted with crops. And so there's not a lot of natural habitat and that this brings it back into the landscape. And that attracts bees to it because they will fly pretty far to find resources. Yeah. What would an ideal field look like to attract native bees? An ideal field, and we're talking big scale, right? Like, so let's go from your sunflower research and then we'll talk more about home gardens and things like that. Sure. Well, sunflower are unique because they're what's known as a mass flowering crop. So they provide this huge amount of resources and a pulse. And since, as I said, a lot of bees can pollinate them. And so they're, they're an amazing resource in and of themselves. And then if you were able to ring that whole field with hedgerows, that would provide a permanent resource. So when that two-week period of sunflower bloom disappears, you would then have additional flowers for the bees to forage on when they didn't have the sunflower. So they didn't have to find the next field, which might be a, a little ways away. So that would be an ideal sunflower field, say for an almond orchard where they bloom earlier in the year, you can plant in between the orchard rows ground cover and of you know native wildflowers and have that bloom for the rest of the year after the almond bloom disappears. So it would be having consistent native flowers as, as much as the year as possible. And a lot of organic diversified farms actually achieve this. There's a ton of crop rotation, polyculture. So you never just have one single crop that's blooming at one time period. You have this nice patchwork of plants. Sometimes there's bed ends and sectary strips. Sometimes you don't always get to the lettuce before it bolts, right? And that provides a short-term resource for bees. Um, so those are different amazing systems for bees. In the Conventional systems in the winter, planting a cover crop is a great way to add resources. If you mix in a flowering species like a clover and then let it go to bloom before you sow in your, you know, annual crop, cash crop, that, that's an amazing short-term resource for bees. 
So let's talk a little bit more about the conventional world and uh, pesticide usage and other other things like that. You know, ir- different kinds of irrigation. Um, what effects having bees on your farm or not? Yeah, so I hinted at before, a lot of bees, they'll nest in those hedgerows and wildflower ships, but they also nest directly in the crop fields. And there, they're subject to irrigation, to the effects of a spray, to tillage. Um, There's some great research out of UC Davis that shows that deep tilling will kill about half of the bee young. They won't be able to emerge. And so a light till or no till might help those bees emerge and continue to increase their populations over time. Irrigation, surprisingly, I did a little project on this with one of my undergrads, and we found, we thought that certainly uh, drip irrigation would be better, right? Because it's less uh, water penetrating the ground and maybe wouldn't inundate and kill the bees, whereas a flood irrigation or furrow irrigation, which just totally saturates the soil, would be much worse. But we actually found no differences between nesting bees and there could be a number of reasons for that one might be that bees line their nest cells with this wax layer that has some hydrophobic properties so that might help prevent the water from penetrating it or they might actually be applying the same amount of irrigation water to the sunflower fields using the drip irrigation, but just getting less evaporation. So using the water more efficiently, but the subsurface environment might be pretty similar for the bees. And maybe that was why we didn't see a difference. In that paper, we recommended people use drip irrigation because it has all of these other um, environmental benefits. Um, I think of like a meadow after a really rainy year or after a particularly dry year. And I don't really know what it's like, like under the ground, right? In terms of the conditions of what burrows and different nests would be like for insects there. Yeah. I mean, some bees, a lot, so most bee diversity is actually in Mediterranean climates where there isn't a ton of rain. And and you can imagine because most of them are underground, but there are bees in the Pacific Northwest. Most of them are above ground nester and pithy stems. In the tropics, some below ground nesters actually lay their young in like a slurry and the larvae are able to deal with a moist environment. So bees have adaptations to this. And there are studies that show that hurricanes and floods actually these super inundating events, um, bees can survive that. What actually might be more harmful is if there's a mudslide and that might destroy their nest, but, but they have some ability to withstand it. Well, that's pretty amazing. They're amazing. They're, they're pretty charismatic. It sounds like it. The more and more I hear about them. But let's talk about, well, let's talk about something bees don't like, which is pesticides and I don't really understand. There's all this new research that's come out and maybe you can just explain bees and pesticides generally and then we can talk more about native bees. Sure. So a lot of pesticides are neurotoxins and will affect, even if they don't kill a bee, if it's a dose that doesn't harm them, they have these sublethal effects where they can affect their navigation, their ability to reproduce, um, to smell and sense other plants. So pesticides have this range of effects on honeybees and native bees. And there's this new class of insecticides that's come under a lot of scrutiny. People have probably heard of called neonicotinoids. They're in synthetic 
synthetic nicotine derivative. So tobacco plants create nicotine as a chemical defense against pests. So it's a pretty potent natural pesticide that was synthesized in the early 1990s and came on the market first as a midocloprid. And the EPA just released a study that preliminary finds that, you know, this is pretty toxic to bees. There's this amazing bee researcher um, in Britain named Dave Goulson who, when he gives talks, he says that just a gram of imidacloprid is enough to kill 250,000 honeybees, which is, that's a lot of bees for a very, very small amount. So they're incredibly toxic. And initially, the attraction with neonicotinoids was that they didn't seem that they would affect uh, things up the food chain, right? Remember DDT and Silent Spring? That was a pesticide that really amplified as it went up the food chain, affecting bird nesting, affecting mammals. And it seems like now, unfortunately, there's more evidence showing that neonicotinoids also affect things besides invertebrates. But even for invertebrates, I mean, these are water-soluble chemicals they get into. They're pervasive in our waterways. Studies have found them in every river where they looked in the Midwest. They found them, which is pretty scary. And they're actually more toxic to aquatic invertebrates. Um, but because they're water-soluble, they're also a class of pesticide that's known as a systemic. This means that they're transported throughout an entire plant. So if you apply it to their leaf, they could get expressed in the pollen. And so bees will forage on a plant and be consuming small quantities of the pollen and nectar containing neonicotinoids. So even if they aren't directly sprayed, right, they could experience the sublethal effects that I described. And so that's part of why they're so why people are so concerned about them, why there's a moratorium on them in Europe, why the state of Maryland just banned them for, not for farming, but for uh, ornamental use, and why California is also considering legislation banning them right now. So do all pesticides affect bees the same ways? And what, once again, like in your imagination, what would it look like to have a field that a conventional farmer did spray sometimes and what would be the ideal conditions to do that or how, how, how does that work? Like, is it an absolute? Yeah. So some pesticides are not rated as toxic to bees. Um, they actually don't have harmful effects. And unfortunately this isn't totally my expertise, so I can't name all of the, the compounds, but there's some great resources out there. Um, Oregon State University has a publication called How to Avoid Bee Poisonings from Pesticides that has a really comprehensive list. Um, and they flag them red, yellow, or green, green being the ones that you can spray and bees shouldn't really be harmed versus red would be the ones to avoid at all costs. The yellow ones are more interesting. They might have, say, be very toxic for a short period, but have a short residual toxicity. So they would dissipate from the environment quickly. So for those, you might be able to spray them at night when bees aren't active. And then, you know, given the right conditions, they wouldn't be available the next day and not that many bees would be harmed. So often for producers, we ask them to think about, you know, what the risk is to bees 
to look at that and then decide when to spray. Maybe don't spray during bloom, spray after bloom when bees aren't present. There are some chemicals when you mix them, they become more toxic. So avoiding those mixtures, um, spraying at night, and of course, always calibrating their spray equipment and spraying during appropriate conditions where there's not a high chance of drift um, or inversion that could carry the pesticides miles away. So, so those are some of the things we recommend. And we, I work for a great nonprofit right now and we, we go through, you know, a pesticide use report with a farmer, suggest alternatives, suggest when they should spray, um, and also work with them on non-chemical mechanisms. So some farmers go through and they'll vacuum a crop. This happens a lot in strawberry. So it's a physical means of getting rid of a pest. Um, there are pheromone traps that are insect specific. So, only the males will go to that trap and you can reduce their populations. But there's also conservation biocontrol. Uh, basically, often you plant the same habitats that support pollinators, support beneficial insects, um, ladybugs, right? Lacewings. These are predaceous ground beetles. They'll go to these habitats and they go out and do natural pest control. Pajasis ground beetles will go out and kill slugs and they're actually so aggressive they'll kill more prey than they can even eat, which is a farmer's dream, right? So we, we try and promote this suite of methods whereby farmers can reduce the need to apply pesticides and then when they are applying it, do it in a much smarter way that doesn't harm the insects that they want to promote on their farm. And obviously has less uh, environmental impacts or there's less risk of other things going wrong too, right? With less pesticide use all around. Um, Is this the program that is the pollinator conservation program? Is that the same thing? At the Xerxes Society? Yeah. yeah, so I work for this amazing nonprofit. Um, I, I respected them before I even started working for them when I first found out about them and was so excited to get a position. Um, but they have a nationwide pollinator program and have really been doing invertebrate conservation um, before anybody else. I mean, they're probably the main nonprofit. We, we are. We're the main nonprofit worldwide um, that looks at invertebrate conservation. And if you really think about it, invertebrates are the center of the food web. They're the most populous uh, species on earth, right? There's more than a million beetle species, but not, they don't get a lot of focus. We tend to focus on the charismatic megafauna, uh, gorillas and, and elephants, whereas these are, are, you know, the foundation of the food web. Um, yeah, we, we like to think of ourselves as like the Audubon Society of Insects. We do a lot of uh, supporting research, a lot of habitat work, and a lot of policy. So um, our executive director, Scott Hoffman Black, worked a lot with the Obama administration on the uh, presidential memorandum uh, to, uh, for pollinator conservation, which basically guided a lot of agencies like the USDA, the Forest Service to come up with best management practices for pollinators. Um, and those are being rolled out. And so a lot of organizations are now starting to think about how pollinators, you know, think about them in their work and, and doing things to conserve them. Yeah, that's cool. I'd never heard that term before, pollinator conservation. So I was just curious what that meant. So thanks for explaining. Maybe Though we can end um, with thinking about if you're interested in having more native bees in your home garden or 
you know, around your workplace or what, whatever. I know everybody has different access to outside space, but like what, what are the right things to do and what do you look out for? Yeah, that's a great question. So in my home, we only had a tiny parking strip between, you know, where we park and the sidewalk. And so we took out the lawn and put in some drought tolerant native plants and then around those sprinkled wildflower seeds. So trying to make sure to have, you know, as local native plants, uh, native bees, as their name, tend to focus on native plants because that's what they evolved with. They prefer them to ornamental plants. Often a lot of ornamental plants look really pretty but don't provide pollen and nectar. And so trying to avoid those. those often the really ornamental ones are have been treated with pesticides, in some cases neonicotinoids, and so might actually be a little ecological traps for the bees when you put them out. Um, and then if you're trying to support nesting, a lot of people love mulching to get rid of weeds. And I think that that's a great way, but trying to leave little patches of well-drained bare soil for bees to nest in will help promote them. Um, and then you can do this throughout the garden. Uh, having it be in a sunny place would be better than a shady place. Um, yeah, those are the main things. You know, go to your local nursery, native plant nursery, and, you know, buy them. And then how can I notice if there are native bees in my garden? That is a great question. So a lot of people think that they're wasps or flies. Some of them are really tiny, but bees tend to be a little hairy. You can often see them collecting pollen. Um you know, you can go to some websites like the Xerxesociety.org and look at pictures or, um, oh my goodness, Sam Drogi of USGS has this amazing Flickr page online that has just all these pictures of native bees. If you're interested in seeing their amazing diversity, you can go there and um, check out what they look like and try and see if they're there. But I think just getting up close and remembering most native bees won't sting you. They're they're not defending a hive. They're the ones reproducing. And a stinger is actually a modified ovipositor. And so they don't want to, you know, tussle with you. And and if they do sting you often, the toxins in their um, venom are slightly different than honeybees. So I, for example, am allergic to honeybees, but I've been stung by a number of native bees and haven't had an issue. Although if you are allergic to, you know, honeybees, make sure you have your EpiPen, go to a hospital. But but for the most part, native bees won't sting. Well, let's end it there. Thanks, Hillary. <laughs> Chelsea. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, 
please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening.